My name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president. Two centuries ago, our nation's birth was a milestone in the long quest for freedom. But the bold and brilliant dream which excited the founders of this nation still awaits its consummation. The challenge to us is to build a new and firmer foundation for the future, for a sound economy, for a more effective government, for more political trust, and for a stable peace. Carter will face the biggest fight of his presidency when he tries to push his energy proposals through Congress. For millions of Americans, this may be the worst weekend they've ever faced for finding gasoline to give them the automobile freedom they take as their due. One of the agreements that President Sadat and Prime Minister Begin are signing tonight is entitled A Framework for Peace in the Middle East. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Is America as respected throughout the world as it was? The time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner. Ronald Wilson Reagan. When people look back on what we did in the White House, uh, I think there's a lot there uh, of justifiable pride. Justifiable pride. Justifiable pride. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast it's just what the world needs he started a podcast Another basic white guy who he started a podcast But it's fun because he curses I've been struggling to find a narrative thread on the Carter years and become increasingly fascinated by this time period in attempting to do so. There are so many contradictions between the mythology cultivated by Republicans and the brief period that the world's most powerful nation in the world was run by a former peanut farmer and one-term governor of Georgia. The things I find objectionable about the Carter years are the things that aren't often addressed. The worst aspects of what many consider to be a failed presidency stand as beacons of achievement in hindsight. Most would consider James Earl Carter to be a simple man. To some, he was overly pedantic. To the elite New England Democrats, he was boorish and oh so Southern. Then again, even his detractors consider him to be an honest man, albeit overmatched by the job, too small for the moment, but honest. In reality, He's far from simple, but he is, and always was, unflinchingly honest. Maybe to a fault. There's a few reasons for putting Carter under a microscope. First, since Biden's inauguration, the comparisons have been plentiful. 
And the president is reportedly worried about parallels that are being drawn between him and the, uh, the Carter administration. We've drawn those parallels several times ourselves. <laughs> but the thing is, if there is a parallel, maybe we should be happy because the Carter era ended with Ronald Reagan. And you can't ignore the similarity, right? When, when you bring up Carter, uh, it, it, look, it, it, there was crippling inflation under Carter. There's crippling inflation under Biden. Unfortunately, today is looking a lot like 1980, and the Carter and the Biden presidencies share far too much in common. Circumstantially, it's not necessarily a terrible argument. Trouble with Iran, further escalations with Russia, multiple economic shocks leading to high inflation, navigating a fractured country after a scandal-laden presidency, tensions with China over Taiwan, Israeli settlements frustrating Middle East peace talks, increasing indebtedness in Latin American economies. It's all very familiar from a headline perspective. But we're a vastly different nation than we were during the Carter years, and Joe Biden is a markedly different man. There are similarities on the surface. Both are men of faith, devoted public servants, and by all personal accounts, incredibly loyal. But as far as I can tell, that's where the similarities end. Two remarkable notes about Jimmy Carter is that he was elected 46 years ago, and he's still alive. That's nearly a half century ago. Another remarkable thing is that Joe Biden had already been in the Senate for four years when Carter was elected. So if I don't believe in the comparisons, why highlight the Carter years so extensively right now? A couple of reasons. First off, most unfuckers know that I believe this to be the true beginning of the neoliberal era. The moment that corporate America chose to fight back against regulations, entitlements, and oversight. The moment that Chicago school economists ascended to prominence when it appeared that Keynesian measures were failing the economy. The moment that prominent far-right figures concocted a coordinated plan of attack to infect higher education, the judiciary, local, state, and federal government, think tanks, organized labor, and the media with neoliberal messaging designed to break the back of the establishment. There are many who believe that we're exiting the neoliberal era as we speak, and that the dawn of a new oligarchical phase is upon us. So there's some degree of symbolism in covering the dawn of an era and its sunset. Lastly, because the circumstantial parallels are indeed palpable, it's important to reflect on the conditions that sparked conflict in certain areas to understand how they evolved. If we're fighting on multiple fronts, be it Israel, Iran, China, Russia, or inflation and an overly aggressive Federal Reserve, surely there's something to be gained in learning about the origins of these issues and conflicts. Roe v. Wade was codified into law just a couple of years before Carter took office. The Federalist Society was formed based on a thesis written by Michael Horowitz during Carter's last year in office. This same society would wind up as the central power broker in selecting Supreme Court Justices Barrett, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, the three far-right justices that would deliberately overturn Roe 50 years after its passage. As I've said many times before, we cannot understand where we're headed unless we understand from whence we came. No matter your impression of Jimmy Carter or his time in office, the fact remains that these years are essential to building our framework of understanding of today's political, economic, and social system. After living with several texts on Carter and watching countless hours of footage, I can confidently say that he was indeed up to the task. In fact, I would go so far as to say that he might have been uniquely suited to the job at that very moment in time. That's not to say he was perfect. 
or had no missteps. There were failings, to be sure. But Jimmy Carter was in the middle of a storm that had been brewing for several years prior, and when it finally came ashore, it's impossible to imagine any one person weathering it. Chapter 1. The Origin Story As of this telling, former President James Earl Carter is 98 years old. Born on October 1, 1924 to Lillian and James in Plains, Georgia, Carter was the oldest of four children, all of whom have since passed. His parents were known to all as Earl and Miss Lillian. By all accounts, Jimmy Carter, as he's most often called, was a studious, shy, and industrious young man who got on well with nearly everyone. The Carters were considered rather well off for the area. While they weren't part of the Southern plantation aristocracy, they were far from poor. Jimmy's father was a stern, hardworking segregationist who many considered extremely tough but fair. He invested everything into his farm while also managing side hustles, military service, and even a position on the County Board of Education later in his life. His father was a classic Southern racist. There's no sugarcoating this fact. But he was the engine in the community that drew blacks and whites together in labor, rent, and sometimes even faith. A devout Baptist, it seemed his only vice was the occasional bourbon and Friday night poker. Lillian, on the other hand, was more outgoing and a bit of a rebel for her time. She smoked, enjoyed drinking, had black and white friends, much to the chagrin of her husband, and was raised a Methodist. When asked if people in their small community were upset with her choice of friends, it's reported that Miss Lillian remarked, quote, we had too much money to be ostracized, end quote. If the Carters were considered rich by the standards of their poor community, one person who was none the wiser was young Jimmy Carter. As the eldest son, Jimmy worked side by side with the Blackfield hands that worked for his father. He would often sneak into Baptist sermons in the black church. It's understood today that the phrase, he didn't see color, is absurd and demeaning. But it did seem that, at a minimum, Jimmy Carter didn't see people of color, just people. In all that's been written or recalled in his nearly 100 years on the planet, there isn't a person who knew him who believed that Jimmy Carter had a racist bone in his body. Now that's not to say he wasn't arrogant. Jimmy Carter was always smart. He was an accomplished student who, along with his siblings, was required by Miss Lillian to read every night at the dinner table. This would prove to be a lifelong habit as Carter consumed information as president perhaps more voluminously than anyone before or since. His grades were good enough to get into community college and then Georgia Tech to study engineering, but his dream was to go to Annapolis. Earl was able to pull some strings for Jimmy to gain admission, and Jimmy Carter's life and service began in the Naval Academy in the middle of World War II. Jimmy would go on to serve in the Navy for the next 10 years and fortunately didn't see any action. Perhaps the most important thing that happened during Jimmy Carter's time in the Navy, however, was marrying his sister's best friend, Rosalind, in 1946. Pretty, intelligent, innocent, and from Plains, Georgia as well, Rosalind Carter remains by her husband's side to this day. From the beginning, she was an honest and resolute truth whisperer, a sounding board, and a guide to her husband. Perhaps the greatest White House partnership since Franklin and Eleanor, and certainly more filled with authentic love. The couple would move throughout the country from post to post over Carter's decade of service, and it seemed to everyone as though Carter was destined to serve his entire career in the Navy. But in 1953, 
Earl Carter's body finally gave out and the Carters returned to Plains, Georgia. And to everyone's surprise, Jimmy Carter quit the Navy and took over his father's farm. Thus, the legend of Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, was born. At the end of a long campaign, I believe I know our people of this state as well as anyone could. Based on this knowledge of Georgians, North and South, rural and urban, liberal and conservative, I say to you quite frankly that the time for racial discrimination is over. The tepid applause that followed this statement made during Carter's inaugural address as governor of Georgia says a lot about the man and his time. Prior to winning the governor's race, Carter had already served as a state senator and was set to run for Congress when the governor's seat opened up in 1966. His first attempt was a failure, losing to Lester Maddox, one of the most racist political figures in modern times. This failure set Carter back and prompted him to do a great deal of soul-searching. But rather than lean into what many would consider the pragmatic instinct to appeal to a deeply Southern contingency, he doubled down on his liberal principles. He ran again in 1970 and was victorious the second time around. Carter's single term as governor wasn't all that notable, but it helped cultivate his governing style and persona that would lay the groundwork for a national campaign that would shock the nation. During his time in office, he collected some important people that would guide him for the rest of his political career and become lifelong friends. Chief among them were Burt Lance, Charlie Curbo, and a young Hamilton Jordan. Only Jordan would accompany Carter to the White House and become an integral part of his presidency, but Lance and Curbo were foundational to Carter's early success and would prove to be voices of inspiration and reason as he navigated his career in the White House. The other thing Carter took from this time was a deep understanding of retail politics and the power of populism. While many today probably don't think of Carter in this way, at the time he was carrying a powerful message of hope for the poor and the working class, a hope that had been lost in the wind under Nixon. Turns out, it's exactly what the country was yearning for. Chapter 2. A Good Old Boy Bids for the White House I remember when I announced for president in December of uh, 1974, there was a major headline on the editorial page of the Atlanta Constitution is that Jimmy Carter is running for what? And the what, the what was about this When Carter announced his bid for president, very few in Washington and in the media took him seriously. A good old boy peanut farmer and one-term governor wasn't exactly the typical presidential pedigree. But Carter started early and worked relentlessly to build coalitions on the ground, one voter, one state at a time. By the time the campaign was in full swing and it was clear that Carter wasn't going anywhere, he was still considered an outsider. But his message had begun to coalesce. Carter ran on a number of promises, some of which still resonate today, and others that seem wholly anachronistic. He was one of the first to suggest that marijuana be reduced to a misdemeanor. Awesome. He promised to curb inflation by restraining the money supply. Not awesome. Carter wanted to reduce foreign imports of oil by increasing prices while giving a tax rebate for the poor. Mixed bag. He favored increasing the recent auto emission standards. Cool. But he also wanted to invest heavily in mass transportation. Doubly cool. He promised to put in strict controls on strip mining. 
create a national health insurance program. To put in place government-sponsored work programs for the unemployed. Give more funds to the arts. Provide amnesty for conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War. Decriminalizing, quote, homosexual conduct. Ah, that would be an example of an anachronistic policy, but well-intended for the time. Yes, and it was especially bold for someone who still teaches Sunday school to this day. True. And speaking of being super religious, he actually spoke in favor of Roe v. Wade and was against mandatory prayer in schools. As almost an afterthought, he was decidedly dovish on foreign policy, but it wasn't necessarily central to his campaign persona. But over time, Carter's foreign policy work would come to define him in both positive and negative ways, something that we'll spend a great deal of time talking about. The central book love resource for these episodes, by the way, is titled The Outlier. It's a comprehensive retrospective of Carter's life and years in office, written by Kai Bird, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. In the book, Bird notes that no one was really sure what to make of Carter's candidacy. For example, Washington reporter Candy Stroud wrote this of Carter, quote, Carter's not just complex, he's contradictory. His paradoxes are multiple. He is at once vain and humble, sensitive and ruthless, softer-hearted and tough, conservative and liberal, country boy with city wisdom, spiritual and pragmatic, loving and cold, end quote. After spending so much time researching Carter, it's amazing how much this sentiment stands the test of time. Perhaps the only thing more complex and contradictory than Carter himself was the time in which he ran for office and presided over the nation. The 1970s were bursting at the seams in all corners of the country. The post-Vietnam era found a generation of baby boomers finally coming of age in a turbulent economy and fractured political environment. Richard Nixon had destroyed trust in the Oval Office, and his VP successor Ford didn't do much to restore it when his first act was to pardon his former boss. The economy was failing for the first time in earnest since the post-war boom, and racial tensions continued to seethe, with the civil rights movement becoming increasingly factionalized. This is where many of the comparisons to the present day come into focus. Here are some comparisons from the Brookings Institute to put things in perspective. Quote, Elevated inflation and weak growth. The global economy has been emerging from the pandemic-related global recession of 2020, just as it did during the stagflationary period after the global recession in 1975. Quote, supply shocks after prolonged monetary policy accommodation. Supply disruptions driven by the pandemic and the recent supply shock dealt to global energy and food prices by Russia's invasion of Ukraine resemble the oil shocks in 1973 and 1979-80. to Increases in energy prices in the 1970s and during the period from 2020 to 2022 have constituted the largest changes in prices of the past 50 years. Then and now, monetary policy generally was highly accommodative in the run-up to these shocks, with interest rates negative in real terms for several years, end quote. Quote, significant vulnerabilities in emerging market and developing economies, EMDEs. In the 1970s and early 1980s, as now, high debt, Elevated inflation and weak fiscal positions made EMDEs vulnerable to tightening financial conditions. The stagflation of the 1970s coincided with the first global wave of debt accumulation in the past half century. Coming into the 1970s, it's important to remember that the Democratic Party was pretty much in disarray. 
memories of the disastrous 68 convention still remained, and the days of Camelot had pretty much evaporated. Senator Ted Kennedy was probably still the biggest star of the party, but he wasn't yet of a mind to stake his claim, as the murder of both of his brothers still haunted the Kennedy family. So the Democrats in contention for the White House to run against Gerald Ford were kind of a motley bunch. Aside from Carter, who had announced his intentions very early, the leading contenders were Jerry Brown of California, George Wallace of Alabama, Frank Church of Idaho, and Mo Udell of Arizona. Due to the timing of the primaries, Mississippi was one of the first caucuses held and Wallace crushed it. But even still, Carter had a relatively strong showing given his Southern heritage. The only other notable primary was Massachusetts, which spread pretty evenly among the leading candidates. So while Brown and Udall had positive showings out West, Carter pretty much dominated the field through the whole race, and he ran the table with an overwhelming delegate count of 2,239. Mo Udall actually came in second with a paltry 330 delegates. And so, this enigma from Georgia was selected to run against a president who could barely muster the energy to even show that he wanted to keep the job. Still, Carter's election was far from a lock. As much as there were social and economic issues to contend with, it's important to remember that we were still in the throes of the Cold War during this period. And one of the questions that followed the former Georgia governor around was whether he could competently grasp the pressing foreign policy issues of the day. During the presidential debate, President Ford offered an opening that the media would pounce on, as would Carter. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Ford had intended to support the people of Eastern Europe in their quest for sovereignty, but instead he bungled his response and he made it look like he was unaware that the Soviet Union literally controlled the entire region. In an instant, it seemed like the Georgian was amazingly on equal footing with the president where our biggest foreign adversary was concerned. A begrudging Washington Democratic establishment, along with artists and musicians and writers from Willie Nelson, Hunter Thompson, and Bob Dylan, were suddenly on board the Carter train. Many with some amusement, others with great caution. But this was their candidate, and as the weeks wore on, the American people kind of warmed to the idea of this soft-spoken Southern boy becoming president. In the end, it was an extremely tight race, with Carter winning 297 delegates to become the president-elect of the United States of America. As Kai writes, quote, he had come from nowhere and triumphed. Just 10 years earlier, he'd been knocking on doors, asking people to accept Christ. And now he was the president-elect who owed the establishment nothing, end quote. In the next episode, we'll walk carefully through the first half of the Carter presidency. What we'll find is an astounding record of achievement, along with the seeds of his ultimate downfall. Here endeth part one. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings, everybody. Sans 99, hopefully for the last time as she finishes up a little time off. 
Just wanted to touch base briefly on a couple of things before we get into part two of Jimmy Carter. The first is, of course, the launch of the YouTube channel. As many unfuckers know, I've been killing myself to try and get the first spate of videos up there so that I could, well, do a couple of things. One, get into the creator circle in YouTube so that we can actually begin to build this as part of a business model. But it's also to kind of cross-pollinate the audiences, have another forum and another community that we can build online so that we can have discussions in real time and even hit some more current events. Believe it or not, some of the turnaround time on the YouTube stuff is actually going to be a little bit faster than the podcast sometimes. But the other thing that I'm obviously trying to contend with is learning how to be a video editor and do all the kind of things that, as I've said before, seven-year-olds can competently manage, but I'm having difficulty wrapping my head around. For example, I'm blurry in half of the episodes and half of the episodes I'm not, but I don't know what the fuck the difference is when I'm filming it. It's just, it's, it's kind of insane. But like I said, I got this old ass brain and I'm just trying to learn some new shit and figure it out. What I can say is that the response has been pretty cool. It's so neat to see so many unfuckers from the potosphere who, you know, we have this strange relationship where it's like we put things out there and we have to wait to hear you on email and then we have to wait to hear, you know, sometimes there's comments within the podcast threads themselves, depending on the app that you're on. But it's a very fragmented kind of universe. So we try to get people together, maybe on Facebook on the unfuckers at all Facebook page that Knutson runs. And, you know, we've taken a break from Twitter because, you know, asshat is asshat. And we just don't want to fuck with Twitter right now while they're just doing so many terrible things to the world and allowing it to be a, a festering cesspool of racism. So what's interesting is that there is like a little community developing on YouTube and it's all the unfuckers coming over. I mean, we're not necessarily being served in any algorithms yet. So it's really just like us hanging out but online. It's it's kind of neat. So I'm enjoying it. I'm you know, I'm loving the process and going through it. It's obviously taking me a little bit more time to get things off the ground and find a rhythm, but I think we're I think we're actually getting there. So if you haven't checked it out yet, just search UNFTR on YouTube. Remember that I can't curse over there, so I have to fuck shit get things out right here. Uh, but uh, YouTube will kind of demonetize you and not let you play around anymore if you curse over there. So unfucking the republic is beginning to look less and less like such a great idea for the name of the show. But, you know, we're going by UNFTR and so far so good, right? So check us out over there. Get involved in the community. We are on our way to trying to get 4,000 watch hours, which is like the first, the next most mission critical milestone that we have to hit. The first was 1,000 subscribers, which Unfuckers did in two fucking days, which is unbelievable. And thank you. So the next part is to actually get the 4,000 watch hours, which is, you know, kind of just a matter of time and just got to keep the accelerator down. In terms of our flow here on the pod, back in a writing rhythm and feeling really good about it, you know, the difference between the YouTube channel and the podcast is pretty much going to be that we're doing bite-sized chunks of the bigger things that we look at on the podcast. So you'll see like five to 10 minute video clips explaining a lot of the general concepts and theories and the things that we've covered here on the podcast. So it's in a more digestible format. And the goal there, the way we have it scripted out and mapped out, is that it's kind of a curriculum of sorts. So we are kind of going all the way back to the beginning, doing some foundational work that will be very familiar to unfuckers. But I think unfuckers will actually kind of find it helpful as well because it just codifies some of the things that we've gone over and puts it into a, a regurgitatable format, if, you know, for lack of a better term. It's like this shitty as topical cream, I guess. Anyway, in terms of the flow of podcast production, we've got the Carter years, which is... Listen, it's probably turning into a three-parter. I really wanted to get this one done and out the door 
because we really get into the meat of some policy things, but I thought it was important to lay the groundwork of kind of the era and what was going on in the world and how fractured the Democratic Party was coming into this. What a surprise it was. I mean, there a lot of things had to break the right way for Carter to actually beat Ford in that election, and it was a razor-thin election. I mean, it was so close. So, you know, Carter didn't really come into office with a mandate, and he had to spend the first couple of years really winning people over to his side. What's fascinating about the actual presidency, even though it's such a short period of time, is that it happens in this window of time where the country really did change. I mean, we really, we really did. And there's really no kind or positive way to put that. I mean, it just, it's like that we, we entered that empire strikes back phase. But part of what I want to disabuse is that Carter wasn't up for the task. I don't think that anybody could have been up for the task. And we'll, we'll explore some of the other people that, you know, would have, could have been around at that time. I think he's the only person that could have done the job. And I'm even more grateful today that he was in the position at that time, even though I think ultimately the, the forces of evil wound up overtaking the country at any rate. So the time period is fascinating to me. It does provide this very interesting bookend of time if we consider ourselves exiting the neoliberal era right now in the 50-year the period that, the, that these economic and social and political policies dominated American politics. Anyway, I'm a big fan of symmetry. I like looking at these things in historical context, but there's so many seeds that were planted at that time that really offer a window into how things develop the right way and then, in many cases, the wrong way. And then hopefully it gives us some insight into how to do better as we exit this era and enter the next one, this inverted totalitarian oligarchical phase of the country where it just seems like, you know, Skynet is about to become sentient and take over. This is, this is you know, corporations are going to be taking over everything. And hopefully this offers some insight into some, into some ways that we can prevent that from happening to kind of hold on to our humanity. So that's it for now. As always, Unfucking the Republic is engineered by the sound design maestro, Manny Faces. It is produced by the all-powerful, all-seeing, omniscient, omnipotent 99, who I miss very much and can't wait to have back in the studio. I'm your host, Max. All the original music is by Tom McGovern. And until next time, unfuckers, I hope you're enjoying your time. See ya.